0: Well, I am really excited about our topic, and I'm even more excited about uh, the people that are sitting before you. Um, The people that are, to my left, are uh, some of the most inspiring, capable, sophisticated, smart uh, leaders uh, that I know. And I am really, really grateful that you're here. So thanks for coming. That that was to you, panel. Um, Our panel, All Addicts Matter, addressing uh, the public and private treatment divide, was sort of nicely uh, preceded by Dr. Johnson's comments. Um, And a comment that I would make about that is that the information that Dr. Johnson reviewed, and she said it, was all public information, was all information about the public sector. So all of the incredible work that NAATP providers do doesn't get represented in the report out of that SAMHSA data, typically, at, at this point in time. It's the way that SAMHSA is organized, it's the federal government, and I, I'm not, by the way, suggesting that that's bad, it's just what is. One of the things that I think, um, and one of the things that I think our panel agrees, is that we should be looking at across-the-board outcomes, across-the-board impact of service delivery, across-the-board of how it is that services are delivered, and what impact, ultimately, we have, both as an association of leaders uh, in the addiction field who are providing incredibly important recovery services Uh, to those who cross your thresholds each and every day. The way our panel will work is that I'll make a a few comments, uh, five minutes or so. My wife timed me this morning and it was six and a half minutes, so I'm going to try to stay to that. And then uh, we'll hear a five-minute sort of organizational journey from each of our panelists Uh, in terms of kind of what their organization has done uh, to sort of navigate the public and private waters, and each are a little different. And then we'll move to some questions. So I already, uh, my note here says turn to the panel and thank them, And, and I feel like I've already done that, but I want to do it one more time and say that your committed, active, and sustained leadership in our field has been a role model for me and I think has been a role model to people you work with and to our field. So um, thank you guys for being here. You and your organizations are truly exceptional, and we'll get to hear uh, about their organizations and about the essential services that get provided to all addicts who are seeking solutions for their addiction. When uh, we heard the sobering data from the Surgeon General's report, you know, some of that, and, and one of the things that I think is important that we also recognize is the fact that somebody who when they were asking a question mentioned, and that is that it's important that we all remember that there are over 25 million men and women who are in recovery in the United States. And that's important to recognize, and that's important to grasp, and that's important that we 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 remind ourselves that people are in recovery. People are living lives a day at a time uh, that are healthier, that are representative of durable, lifelong recovery. Recovery is happening. And one of our biggest opportunities is overcoming, I think, the distinctions based on payer source, so that we're able to deliver the highest quality value-based services to all people with addiction. Uh, Many of you have, uh, like those on our panel, built your systems to navigate the public and private systems. Your infrastructures, your strategic plans, your program plans, your agency agendas, and your policies speak to a unique and blended strategy. Again, depending on what your interest is, what your market bears, what is reflected by the needs of those that you serve. And one of the things that I know is important about a panel like this is that, and I, I, I suspect that you'll hear some of this from our panel members, but I have um, uh, spent about 40 years in our field, about 20 in the private sector, and about 20 in the public sector. and. I, uh, when one of my children needed uh, an intervention and treatment uh, for his recovery, um, I looked to uh, the best organizations that I could find because I had access to those resources. I had access to uh, the best resources that were available, and I used those resources. In fact, I used a couple of the resources represented by people who are sitting before you. Um, In fact, uh, he spent a a couple of different experiences in a couple of those places. Today he's sober, uh, and he's the father of Luciano and Antonio. And he's been sober for five years and um, working a really, really good job. And he's living a day at a time sober. And that's because I had access to the life-giving recovery services that he was able to access because I had access to those resources. I've often thought about what could have happened had he not had access to those resources, had he not had access to those life-saving recovery support services. I'm not so sure that Luciano and Antonio would be here. I'm not so sure that he'd be the director of sales for a major steel company. I'm not so sure uh, that he'd be living the life that he's living. And he sent me a note this morning. I'm going to I'm gonna read you this note that he sent me this morning. Uh, I wasn't planning on doing this, but you know how these things are. Um, the note that he sent me, I want to make sure I get to it here. Uh, he said, uh, love you, pops, thinking about you. Uh, hope you guys do well today. God bless you. Uh, you're an awesome papa and a great dad. Um, he wouldn't have sent that note, uh, when he was actively in his addiction. But because of the life-giving recovery services that he had access to, um, he sent me that note this morning, um. Can we give it up for Peter? Uh, So we agree uh, that, um, at least those of us that are up here, and I know a number of you in the audience feel this way, we agree that people have a right to lead lifelong sustained and durable recovery. Our panel today isn't about challenging or changing organizational business models or practices. That, that's not what our panel is focused on. But our panel is about at least taking a look. All addicts matter and, and all business models matter. That's clear. We have a need for a healthy payer mix and a revenue cycle that is turning around uh, enough revenue to allow us to have something left over at the end of the year and something to pay our expenses along the way. For sure, providing recovery services with appropriate reimbursement is more challenging than it's ever been. Payer systems are evolving and services continue to evolve as well. Carl Kester said, "Um, we have to look at those things and we have to do better. Um, Carl sort of put that Gauntlet down for all of us uh, at the beginning of the conference. Um, I think that that has perpetuated a lot of the sessions that I've listened to since I've been here, the notion of doing better. So now turning to our panel. The providers on our panel here, as I said, are extraordinary leaders. They get that all addicts matter. And we've got a little over 200 years of experience represented. Um, yep, the field is graying—that's for sure. Uh, except for Nanette, I think. Uh, each will talk about their organization's journey, and after they finish, we'll move to some questions. So I'm going to introduce each panel member, and I'm not going to—I'm not going to shorten their bios because their bios are significant. What they've done is significant. So. I'm going to introduce each. Um, First, Mike Schicks has worked in the substance abuse field for over 39 years. He spent 26 of those years at the Hazelden Foundation in a number of capacities, including executive vice president of the Hazelden National Treatment System. From 2006 to present, Mike has been the chief executive officer at Project Turnabout, which uh, has and operates recovery centers as a nonprofit organization that provides a full array of addiction treatment services in a number of locations. Mike's leadership experience and commitment to health, helping others, is well known to me and to most everybody who knows him. Nanette Zumwalt is the president and CEO of Hired Power and has worked in the mental health and addiction recovery field for almost three decades. Under Nanette's care and leadership, Hired Power has taken the pioneering role in treating addiction in adolescents, young adults, and adults during their high-risk and very important transition periods of long-term recovery. Higher Power has established and provides professional services with gender-specific focus to clients and families. Maureen McDonnell works at the intersection of public health and the criminal justice system by building partnerships and coalitions to facilitate the problem-solving processes that those systems represent. With over 25 years of experience, Maureen works to increase access to behavioral health care for people in the criminal justice system by developing initiatives that include health insurance enrollment at jail intake and in prisons, as well as linkages to behavioral health care. Maureen leads active systems planning processes in large jurisdictions throughout our country. Kermit Dowlin is the current President and CEO of Jackson Recovery Centers in Sioux City, Iowa. Kermit has served as Jackson's CEO since March of 1980, and has led its development of a continuum of fully integrated treatment services for persons of all ages and all socioeconomic classes. Kermit is a person in long-term recovery. He currently serves on the NAATP Board of Directors and has done so for over 20 years. He is a past chairperson of the NAATP board and currently serves on the executive committee. And finally, Phil Eaton is president and CEO of the Rosecrans Health Network. Uh, we had the pleasure of listening to Phil yesterday as well. Rosecrans is a comprehensive behavioral health organization which serves over 32,000 people annually. With 800 staff, Phil manages a $60 million budget with operations at over 50. Midwestern sites. Under Phil, Rosecrans opened Northern Illinois's first chemical dependency treatment center for adolescents and the only certified recovery homes for adolescent females in the Midwest. Rosecrans is a nationally recognized and respected behavioral health organization. Please help me welcome, before they begin their organizational journey, our panel, starting with Mike Schicks.
1: Peter, now I better say something smart,
2: huh?
1: <laughs> a Project Turnabout has uh, uh, been in existence since 1970, and just like so many other programs around the country, it started from very, very little. It was a TB, an old empty TV center that they decided maybe they needed to do a problem, a problem or an alcohol and drug problem program out of An interesting sideline to this is that we talk a little bit about the Wilmer experience. Project Turnabout is in Granite, falls about 30 miles from the Wilmer community. And after some of the professionals that made the Minnesota model, some of my mentors, Dan Anderson, Gordy Grimm, and Harold Swift, left and went to other programs. And I found that out, I was speaking at a self-help group, and that self-help group didn't particularly like where I... work previously because he said they took the money and ran but what happened is is that the state changed and less and less there was some of the values related to uh, spirituality and the 12 step kind of model so they began to search some of the counselors that were left for a place where they could rekindle some of that spirit and they found this little TB clinic 30 miles away. And some of the names on that were the original counselors of Wilmer. And uh, it all kind of came together for me with that. The organization was fledgling, started at like 20 beds, then it went to 36, then it remodeled. In 98, 99, they finally scratched all their money together for public funded patients, essentially to build another center. And in 2000, an F4 tornado leveled the entire facility to the ground. Now, this is the story of the spirit of this place. The board looked around and said, we can get a place to relocate the patients. And they relocated the patients in in an old state hospital building that had since closed. And during that period of time, they didn't miss one salary. Not one person's salary was missed, and then they said we are going to rebuild, and they rebuilt in 2003, and they or in 2000 or 2000, and they started opened in 2003, brand new facility. But interesting enough, all the publicity got to the place where they were now full, and they were a 21 bed program or 36 bed program with now 60 beds, and they didn't know what to do with it. So after a while. Uh, uh, the the director retired and I was recruited and essentially it caught my heart. It it, captured my heart. I met with the staff there and I captured that spirit. uh, I got that spirit from them that they were going to help people no matter what. They were going to do whatever they could do and I fell in love with it. Uh, The one thing that we needed to work on was team and everything was team so we worked on team and since then uh, we've, we've accomplished a lot. We have uh, we do prevention for 27 counties. We have a halfway house for 24. We have two sober houses. We do outpatient in four, area, four areas. We've uh, increased the number of uh, beds in our Granite Falls tr- to essentially 122. Um, we have around-the-clock medical services, uh, mental health services, uh, 6 to 1 caseload. But the board has been tenacious about uh, keeping me to the goal of keeping the costs down. Uh, We we get paid about three, all-inclusive, $300 a day. And we do that with administrative costs at the very, very lowest. Use of technology, electronic records, uh, telemedicine, uh, drug court involvement where people can attend drug court from our, our treatment center. And we're still learning every day. But the one thing I know about it all is its culture, organizational culture, the staff, the team. uh, I I sometimes get uncomfortable talking about it because I feel like the whole team should be here. Um, About 70% of our population is public-funded. 30% uh, come from various, you know, whether it's private pay or insurance. So that's sort of the story and that's the background. We're pretty continuously full. Uh, I don't ever take that for granted, coming from a couple times in my career where things changed quickly. But uh, I'm happy to be here and happy that Peter asked me. I haven't been back to NATAP for a couple of years, so thank you. Thank
0: you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. So if you've got questions for individuals, please uh, jot those down as, uh, as each presenter makes their five-minute presentation. Maureen McDonald from TASP
3: good morning everyone uh, my name is Maureen McDonnell I'm the direct national director for healthcare strategies at Task. and TASC stands for treatment alternatives for safe communities as you might imagine that's a pretty much a hundred percent public side public market program project um, and TASC was founded in 1976 in Chicago and over the course of five or seven years became a statewide undertaking. Um, There is uh, a law on the books in Illinois that allows people who believe uh, the reason that they're in front of a court is related to their drug or alcohol use or dependence that they can ask for an assessment and that those findings can be taken into account uh, when the judge makes a determination in their case. Um, that pre-existed Task, but that is part of the statute that we operate under, and um, building the capacity so that getting to most of the people who are legally eligible under those requirements has been a 40-year journey. Um, so today, TASC uh, works with about 30,000 people across the state every year. Um, most of our clients are involved in uh, the courts, whether it's the criminal courts um or leaving a jail or prison or involved in the child welfare system um, and all of them have sub hello okay sorry lost ya. Uh, have substance use disorders and many of them also have underlying um, significant mental health conditions and so that's our kind of our niche and our area of focus um, for the most part, for 40 years, we have not been a substance abuse treatment provider, and that means we work with literally every publicly funded provider in the state of Illinois. I think we're at about 300 uh, right now, and I see a number of our partners in the audience this morning, so it's great to see you all. Thank you. Uh, and I want to especially thank Phil uh, for his years of work with TAS clients, um, many years of good work with TAS clients. and. So um, I was reminded last night when I was at the uh, joined you all at the awards dinner, and um, one of the stories told was about a federal grant being used to start off a really important family treatment program in New Jersey, and I thought how much that mirrors the history of Task, uh, which started off with a grant from then the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, now the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Um, that allowed a $500,000 project to get started that you know, sort of gave rise to all this down the road. Um, our job, since we're not treatment providers, is to um, help people begin the journey. Um, the thing that struck me the most from Dr. Johnson's presentation this morning was the 90-90-90 chart uh, where she talked about the three critical elements of identification, engagement, and remission. Um, because once we uh, once we get people to their first episode of treatment, the hard job is getting them to stay in treatment and get through the hard parts so that they can get the good benefits on the other side. Um, and so our our work over the years has been to figure out how to do that. How do we work capably and competently with substance abuse treatment providers? Let providers do what they do best we do other parts and uh, together working for the same outcome. So I think I'm going to stop there and pass on to Nanette.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Maureen. Good morning, Nanette Zumwalt with Hired Power. Peter knows I talk a lot. Nanette, I'm not sure you're on. Good
4: morning. There, you go. there we go. See, I need help. Okay. Good morning, Nanette Zumwalt with Hired Power. Um, Peter knows I talk a lot, so I started my so you'll all know that I'm at five minutes. Um, I am the CEO and President of Hired Power, and we are an organization in Southern California in Huntington Beach, and we serve a population across the country. When Peter first asked me to be on this panel, I was like, huh, I wasn't really sure. In relative terms, comparatively, we're a small organization. Um, We don't accept public or private insurance. and uh... I, I wasn't sure really how we fit but when i went back and reviewed our journey of how we began and who we serve who we began serving and how we serve and became a community resource locally i realized that was exactly why he invited me on this panel was to speak about how we can all make differences in our community in the public private sector connection even if we aren't um, even if our mission statement and our general services aren't for everyone. Hired Power started in 2002. We started as what we called a um, a private staffing company, hence the the name Hired Power. We were sending people into the home. Um, It was innovative. We were sending people into the home to help clients transition, to help them apply. Um, their new skills, thoughts, and ideas into recovery. We were sure, along with my partner, Deborah Magaldi, and I, when we started, that I had been in treatment, working in treatment for 17 years at that time. I'd been a community liaison. I'd been part of a psychiatric assessment mobile team. And I was really out in the community working with families, um, working with individuals in the after treatment or before the access of treatment so we were really naive in thinking that um, when we created this concept and Hired Power was going to bring these services to the community that not only would the treatment industry and everyone be so excited and so welcoming but they would even give us a parade. Well, no parade. Not a whole lot of welcoming. In 2002 there wasn't a lot of emphasis in aftercare. We were still really focused on the acute experience in the chronic disease. Um, 2017, we're a lot further along in that, but it was really a journey. We were serving the um, private sector in far as private funding, um, cash pay, no insurance. We went to the insurance companies, we tried to sell them on this great idea. They said, thank you for sharing, now go away. Um, we're still battling that today in 2017. Still trying to see how our services can be accessed and utilized through insurance services, and I think we're getting closer to that. Um, but our journey in 2002, we were really serving on a national scale, privately funded individuals, higher socioeconomic status, going into the home with them, providing aftercare services, helping them, acu- uh, helping them really begin to build their recovery services. And as we grew, um, in our own community, as we became a resource, as we became a name, we started getting calls and, and outreach from people for services we weren't providing. And we knew that all of our services were never going to be available to everyone because of the cost, budget cost, operational. Um, costs, and so we started looking at our community, and I'm going to ask Geneva to put up a slide. Um, There was an article in the Orange County Register yesterday, not very positive on the rehab community, but it shows that there is currently 18,774 licensed beds in Southern California. They are referring to it as the rehab Riviera. Now, if you look at those numbers of licensed beds and you see all those dots, you say, "Wow." But if you think that there is three times that number of sober living, unlicensed beds in the state of California, you are realizing what our community is struggling with. The number of individuals that are being flown into our community, that are being transported into our community to access services, and either by relapse or chronic illness or lack of funding, they are now in our community. So they are becoming... um, a pretty heavy burden to our community services, our emergency services, our hospitals, our police departments, etc. cetera. And so Hired Power really, our leadership team, wanted to look at how can we be a community resource? How can we do this without it really wiping out our operational uh, capabilities and our budget? And so we looked at some of our services that we were able to bring to the population. We do a lot now. We do all of the drug testing in the four local high school districts. We provide free um, assessments to all families that have positive testing. We do a lot of sliding scale interventions. We do a lot of free assessment and services in finding the underprivileged, underserved, underinsured treatment. Um, I have a lot of resources both across the country, but really in Southern California, we have a lot of great providers that are really doing these services. We go into court, um, we do alternative sentencing plans and treatment plans and represent clients in court. A lot of this is on sliding scale or pro bono. Um, And again, only in our local community. This isn't something we're able to provide across the country for clients today. But really, how did we? How could we become a local community resource? How could we make some of our services accessible to all families? Um, we talk about all addicts, but I really talk about all families. And I think that we're really doing our part in serving um, our local community in this way. And I think that's why Peter invited Hired Power and myself to this panel. So that's my five minutes, Peter.
0: Thank you, Nanette.
2: Good morning, my name's Phil Eaton, and I work for the Rosecrans Health Network, and we operate programs in Illinois and uh, Iowa and southern Wisconsin. And yesterday I spoke um, kind of about our organizational journey, so I'll try to be brief uh, and speak to just a little, uh, perhaps, depth to that today. Rosecrans started in 1916, Uh, Basically, child welfare-type business and then in the early 80s, really did a a serious turnaround of a business model. Uh, Many of the youth it was a youth-oriented facility at that time, youth serving, um, and switched to substance abuse treatment in 1982, largely because the vast majority of the kids that we were seeing from child welfare were having serious problems with alcohol and or other drugs. And that was quite a change um, in Illinois for us. And, you know, you can imagine if you were a board member of an organization that was historically child welfare and at a board meeting my staff and I came in and said, you know, we want to make a big change. And we have the typical board members, like probably many of you do, and they go, oh, really? And so we laid out the whole need, and it was a compelling need uh, for them to understand. But they said, Phil, can we really make this work? And if you think of the, the financial implications of literally stopping one kind of service and not exactly, but on a Monday, starting a new kind of service. It was a scary endeavor. And the board was there with us. They trusted us. They understood the need, and they were sensitive to the need of responding to these uh, young adults, uh, adolescents. But they said, Phil, this has got to be sustainable. And at that time, sustainable in Illinois, working with the public dollars, uh, those two words didn't go together. Um, We had considerable chaos in the child welfare system. It's like every six months they'd get a new director who would then bring in a new direction and new, you know, everything was always new. And, you know, as a provider trying to contract for that newness uh, was always a challenge. So we, we knew that we had to make choices make build a platform of sustainability and that kinda is what leads into the mix that we decided to do not unlike what many health systems have of a blended payer mix now as we journeyed around the country and talked to other providers that were doing addiction treatment this was not the case usually it's publicly funded or privately funded commercial insurance and they developed like this not together. But our business strategy and our model to develop a sustainable program to provide the services, because we had great doubt of reliability on at least the state public funding at that time, that was pre-Medicaid in the 80s, was to have a blended funding stream. So that's what we did, is that we worked with insurance companies and and uh, that was a journey of itself in the 80s and then into the 90s, um, you know, in the advent of managed care. But at the same time, developing uh, public contracts and serving individuals. And and out of that kind of a sustainability approach came the Rosecrans business model that we have lived with for many years where we really want to try to provide treatment services regardless of ability or payer. It's a, it was a big challenge. Uh, that was one that our board got behind, uh, both uh, uh, policy-wise and philanthropic support for the gaps. Uh, we quickly realized that people that had the ability to pay have expectations, and they have choices, and They walk into the front door and kind of look around like many of us do as a consumer and decide whether this is the place we want to buy our goods and services or not. Is this is the neighborhood we want to uh, shop in. Um, And individuals that are, now I know this might be a little more controversial perhaps and maybe could have been safer later in this discussion. But uh, people that have publicly, public funds, they have Medicaid or state contracts, they don't have those choices. They go where the contracts are. And oftentimes they go to facilities that were probably something else once. Um, maybe it was a school or a nursing home or something rehabbed into a treatment center. Individuals that have the ability to pay, they have a higher expectation. They have insurance card, they have choices. And so as part of our strategy was that we're gonna design and build our facilities to the highest standard, and everyone enjoys them. We're gonna staff those, program them to the highest standard, and everyone can benefit for that, and it worked for us. Uh, so I, and that then grew into many sites, and many outpatient clinics and adult services but i'll let kermit carry the ball from here. <laughs> thank you phil
0: thank you, phil.
5: i'm kermit dollin president and ceo of jackson recovery centers in sioux city iowa uh, i'd like to start off by saying that one of the prob- probably the biggest misnomer about this whole conversation is the language we use every one of us at this table is a private Pri- provider We're incorporated as private corporations, but we have a not-for-profit status, and we have a mission and vision to provide treatment services to everyone within our community, regardless of their ability to pay. So we oftentimes talk about public sector versus private sector. I, I don't see that. The public sector is our government, And in some states, government actually does run treatment. But all of us sitting in front of you today are privately incorporated companies, and we provide care, uh, and we happen to take Medicaid, Medicare, and other public funds to serve our population. Jackson was started in 1976 by Bill and Marion Jackson, a pediatrician in the community of Sioux City started off as a 20-bed child and adolescent chemical dependency unit it was primarily uh, this was pre-medicaid expansion days of course and we were primarily uh had commercial insurance as our primary payer as uh time went on programs in our community failed and gordon chemical dependency was the name of the program at that time uh succeeded and we Acquired other services and we became we started to expand into adult services and other services as time went on as being a survivor in our community like I shared with you we're We're a community-based organization where our purpose is to actually serve what the needs of our community are Sioux City is a set uh, MSA of hundred and fifty thousand people it just meets the threshold to be called that Uh, and we serve Uh, Northeast Nebraska, Southeast South Dakota, and Northwest Iowa. The thing to remember about our community is that 80% of our public school students qualify for reduced or free lunch. So we have a large community of people who are lower middle class. uh, We would consider working poor in our community. So if we're going to meet our vision and mission of serving our community, we have to find a way to have, allow them to have access. Uh, we have a mission to, to create a recovery-centered community. So our mission is more than just provide treatment services, but also to educate our community about the nature of the disease of addiction and try to make an impact on our community so that our, our, our patients don't have to suffer the stigma, but also to have a community that is supportive of their recovery services. Our mission is to save lives by promoting recovery and providing programmatic excellence. We're committed to a program of process improvement. We believe that everybody deserves to be in a treatment uh, uh, service and facility that is clean, uh, safe, attractive, and a place where no matter how much money you make, you feel comfortable there. We believe that everybody should be treated with love and respect. and Provided the same quality services, regarded regardless of your ability to pay. We're a fully integrated program, and what I mean by that is we provide the full continuum of care, starting with primary education and intervention services, we and ending with uh, detox services in terms of the the top end of our continuum and everything in between. We're also fully integrated in terms of being an addiction-focused company, but at the same time, we have experienced that a lot of our addiction problems are, are iatrogenic, they're created by other people, other providers, uh, uh, physicians, well-trained, well-intentioned physicians, for, for for example, are creating about 70% of our uh, opiate problem. Yeah. So. Um, we ex- we experienced with all kinds of collaborative efforts in our community to work with physicians and dentists and stuff to provide support to our patient population. We have finally rested on the fact that it's time to integrate all of our services. So we have uh, we employ two MDS, five ARNPs, and we provide primary medical care, family medical care for all of our patients. We have clinics and family practice clinics and all of our residential sites and our outpatient sites, and a significant number of our patients are long-term family practice clients as well as uh, get their addiction care. We also provided uh, all of the psychiatric care because we know that different, uh, there's different schools of thought about how to prescribe medicines to our patients in recovery, and we hire our own Psychiatric ARNPs and our psychiatrists and uh, they provide their prescribing and their treatment within our defined programmatic philosophy Um, We service about 5,000 patients a year and about 65% of those are Medicaid patients Um, We have 180 licensed beds like I said we had five primary prevention staff we have eight Outpatient clinics, three of them are in the Sioux City metro area, five of them are in rural counties surrounding us. We have a 12-bed child and adolescent psychiatric unit, crisis stabilization unit. We have 64 adolescent primary uh, chemical dependency co-occurring beds. Uh, Those of you that are, uh, they'd be like uh, PRTF beds in the federal language, Uh, they're subacute 3.7 3.7 ASAM beds. If you're, you're looking at that, we have 30 women and children's beds where we have uh, treat our moms and their kids are actually involved. Uh, come with mom and live in the uh, treatment center with their moms, where we have licensed daycare on the premises, so mom can go to treatment all day and be in treatment services. And then in the evening, the, ch- the children are reunited with mom, and then we do some parenting things and supportive stuff along the way. Uh, we have an 18-bed gender-specific adult residential program, a 22-bed uh, adult uh, male residential treatment for 146 total primary residential beds, 34 halfway house beds, 12 men, 12, 12 women, 22 uh, men. We also have a 24-apartment living complex that we built with development uh, funds. We created an LLC and used tax credits to build 24 apartments. These apartments are designated specifically and only for women, women with children in recovery. There we have Head Start program. We have uh, job services. We have all the wraparound services to help people get into school or get a job or whatever and provide them right there on campus in this 24 bed uh, complex. We also joint venture with our community health center, doing Espert and integrated behavioral health, and uh, have tried to work within our community to, again, adjust our programs to be able to meet the needs of our local uh, community. Our local community is multicultural in that it's about 80 percent white, 10 percent Hispanic, the rest of our population is made up of African American African immigrants. Uh, we have uh, did I say we have a large Hispanic Spanish speaking population. We have five Spanish speaking therapists, and and we do all of our groups in specialty. We create our therapy groups and our therapy programs based upon needs of our patients. So we have, uh, and we do just about everything uh, gender specific. Uh, We do um, We do specialized process addictions. We do gambling treatment. We do shopping. We do sex addiction We do all of those services um, in uh, our continuum of care and continue to always evaluate where we're going but doing it all together whether or not um, you're an attorney in our community or you are a homeless person coming off the street um, all of those services are provided in a way to meet your needs within an environment that makes you feel comfortable safe and hopefully provide the service we they deserve Kermit thank up. you very
0: very much so as as we've listened to to essentially five different approaches to um, and I appreciate the clarification uh, that you made Kermit on the front end of your comments that yes we are all uh, Nonprofit 501c3 organizations uh, that uh, have a nonprofit status uh, and deliver services to either uh, people who are funded through the uh, public dollar, like Medicaid or Medicare, uh, and other public dollars, or uh, receive commercial insurance or some form of self-pay. So as as we think about that, I'm, I'm going to direct a question to somebody on the panel, and then anybody else on the panel who'd like to answer, uh, please feel free after I've uh, directed the question to a particular individual. So um, Mike, I think I'll start with you. And what I'm wondering is, from a uh, mission or, or business uh, perspective, um, what was it that motivated you and others at Project Turnabout to move in the direction that you described? Well, I
1: think Kermit covered a lot of it. I think that people with this addiction, we say it all the time, um, come from all walks of life. And I, I, I saw a conference or a, a, a meeting yesterday with uh, Mr. Tomasi where he talked about, so where are all these alcoholics and addicts going? And he talked about, well, they're going into health care systems. Um, well, it's not hard to find them. They're in our social service agencies. They're in our courts. They're in our jails. They're in our prisons. You know, when I I do a talk with the patients and I ask the patients in the room, how many of you should have gotten at least 100 DUIs? And they all go out. I won't ask that question here. I know. And so the issue of what and how somebody comes in and how they're paid for, uh, really is irrelevant. I mean, it's certainly not business wise. We have to do the whole issue of utilization review and all of those things in the contracts. And we work with the, the, the counties in this, in the state a lot. And, and, and that's a challenging, uh, Minnesota is a little bit of the land of 10,000 regulations. But it was also uh, there, the birthplace of HMOs, where essentially if you didn't have the right insurance and if you even did have the right insurance, you couldn't get in, and people can't afford co-pays. So there was a gap. There was a hole. The other issue is is that we knew that we wanted to get better and better and better, trained people at Niatex in terms of quality improvement, really worked on our culture in terms of team involvement. Uh, Nothing improves if you've got fear in the culture. If there's fear in the culture, nobody will tell you what needs to improve. So when we added all of these things together, we began to see that we could make a difference. And our catchment area is rural Minnesota. All but three counties in the state refer to us. Because after getting accredited and after, you know, we're not heavy into the marketing thing. We want our reputation to speak for itself, and that is As an old alcoholism counselor and a person in recovery, I know one thing about the people that most of the people that get in the field. They got in this field to help others. And from my years at Hazelden, I did teams in which things were cooking and working and invested, and the business was thriving. And so that's what powers us. We're savvy administratively, uh we need information systems and we need information services uh we got three people to do all of the accounts receivables accounts payables um, uh purchasing budgeting we've got three people to do uh, outreach for the most part in the organization there's two administrative assistants but what we have is a 6 to 1 counselor rate a 20 to 1 mental health person rate around the clock nurses what we do is put all the money into the clinical services. And that's, I, I, I'm not taking any bows here. That's essentially what the board said to me. We want to see if we can be better and raise the level. And at the same time, we need to be, keep affordable. And so that's become a mission in that agency. And the staff are on fire. And if you're transparent about that agency, that's where it is. And, and the business... Yeah, I spent more time at the legislature this last year than I'd like to. And I spent more time talking with insurance groups than I'd like to and county folks. Um, but I don't know if that answers at all. But there is, despite of what the the directions people say, the patients on the public that are publicly funded, they're going to go
0: somewhere. And I'm tired. I'm going to jail. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it, it sounds like a big part of your focus is to invest resources into the clinical service delivery part of what it is that you do um, anybody else want to take a whack at that one anybody else want to take a whack at that one um, so clearly uh, you've talked about your respective organizations there must be some substantial challenges uh, that you experience on a pretty regular basis they've got to be Challenges that make you want to scratch your head and maybe rethink what it is that you're doing. Um, Phil, how about articulating some of those challenges uh, that make you scratch your head?
2: Yeah, I think the uh, public policy issues. Um, when we st- stand back from, you know, the the business approaches and the regulatory and Uh, the marketing and the referral and we look back at what's really changing or influencing public perception as well as access to care, I think one of the key things is for us to really stay involved with public policy matters and try to influence. You know, in in our community, we believe that it's all local. Now, we look at the ACA and scratch our head that what's going to happen what's going to happen there, how's that going to change, and how will that ultimately impact on us. But many of the local and statewide public policy decisions, particularly in the arena that we work of Illinois, Wisconsin, and now in Iowa, um, are, are so important in terms of our client access to care. And whether those legislators who we feel are becoming Um, increasingly distant uh, from the crisis because they hear about just, it seems like they go from one crisis to another and they're becoming desensitized uh, to crisis, and particularly as it affects those that we care about. Um, So to continually be impacting and reaching out to those that are elected and appointed officials that drive access uh, in particular in a local community um, as it deals with state and regional uh, matters. Thanks, Phil. Kermit?
5: Yeah, if I could, I, I, I think the biggest barrier to providing services to people of all walks of life and all uh, socioeconomic classes and the like is how to create a clinical experience that is safe and that is there that is productive for everyone because you can't put a school teacher in with the students that she's taught you can't put a police officer in a group with the people he's arrested but if you have a belief that all people that all people are the same in terms of their um, needing love and respect and treated with dignity you've got to find a way that Doesn't feed into the stereotype or the stigmas about actually segregating care. So we struggled with that in terms of, uh, especially um, high end professionals were really uncomfortable in coming to services. And what, even though we were doing, I thought, a really excellent job with that, creating different tracks and different ways of. Providing clinical decision-making based upon who and how to create these clinical experience So it really turned down to branding and managing your brand in such a way as that you don't get branded as the place where everybody on Medicaid goes for care or everybody That is poor goes to care. You have to brand yourself in a way is that you are the place to go because they provide the right care to the right people in the right environment at the right time at the right place and make make themselves accessible so it is really a balance of marketing and being making good sound but difficult clinical decisions and training and creating tracks and services that everybody leaves with the experience that I got the same experience I get the same quality that somebody that lives in, uh, off a country club in Sioux City. Um, that is difficult to manage, but it's critical to to manage if you're going to be successful, I believe, in doing a good job in terms of this marketplace and being a good community servant. Excellent.
0: So Kermit, you make uh, a couple of, uh, I think, interesting comments that sort of lead to other questions for sure. The... Um, the notion of stigma, the notion of branding, the notion of um, no quality differentiation, no service differentiation between those who are served. Um, Nanette, when when you think about branding your organization, you know, that's that's an important part of what we all do, that whole notion of kind of image management and how are we branded, how are we seen, how do we want to be seen? As you brand uh, hired power as it relates to this particular issue, what things are you cognizant of? What things are particularly relevant from a branding perspective, from an image perspective? and And I'll ask others that same question. So the branding and image question of your respective organization?
4: Well, obviously, brand awareness is a key issue that we're all facing and all addressing. And as Phil said, or as Kermit said, we don't want to be seen as the place where just a certain population is served or where a, you know people can be sent. We want to be seen to to treat the population that we've identified, whether it be um, a New Directions for Women that, that – serves women or uh, gender specific young adult men or an LGBTQ, you know, we all wanna be seen in our brand serving the population that we serve. And I think we have to be very cognizant and very clear in what we're representing and how we do that. I don't know that, um, you know, speaking not just for this panel, but for our field as a whole, we all have specific brands and, and we need to protect and be really clear as what that is. We can't be all things to all people. We can't serve everyone. So just clarity in our brand and in our target um, marketing and awareness of who we want to draw and how we can provide services and access to the communities.
0: Mike and then Maureen on that branding issue.
1: You know, I'm more interested in brand attributes. I mean, the word branding has always been a little bit elusive. I know there's the, the, all of the stuff you go through with the consultants with the, you know the look and the colors and all of that stuff. But really, when I think of branding, I'm thinking of brand attributes. And to me, that's brand. What are the promises? What are the, the, what are the promises embedded into your organization and agency? And I think Kermit hit some of those, and Phil hit some of those, safe trustworthy, acting in best interest. And people who come to us oftentimes have been to other treatment programs and situations Mm -hmm. uh, with all sorts of different experiences and all sorts of questions, some of them good, some of them not so good, but they become, particularly family members, parents, wary, and they want to know about those questions and how do you answer those questions but more importantly how do you live up to those questions and how do you present those questions and promote those questions in what kind of promotional approaches you take but the attributes uh uh to me are the most you know uh, important piece one of the things i talk to the staff is this is a complex business in some ways very complex business but it's really important here's a little bit of a slogan internally we do the business stuff to support the mission we don't do the biz the mission stuff to support the business and that's the stuff that keeps that sense because ultimately what people experience in the brand and and they always say the word of mouth brand is the most important thing is the relationship they have between the clinician and their loved one the contact they have between the outreach person or the admissions person or whatever so that's kind of where i see with brand and i will tell you we're all threading the needle with that because of some of the stuff that folks have been talking about with the bad actors out there uh... you know how do you say trust me
0: thank you mike
3: Uh, just to add one thing about branding, when I, th- I was thinking about um, our clients, task clients, many of whom have been in jail, prison, um, or almost were, uh, they came to us instead. Um, for them, I think the most important thing that I've learned over the years from them about our brand is that we—they—they be- they have come to feel that we cared about them when perhaps nobody else did. And I heard other people. Talking about that on this panel, I don't think that's unique to task, but I think it's somewhat unique to the life experiences of people um, that we interact with, and so I think our our accountability to that belief and that you know it's it's we have to act consistently with that over time um, in order to continue to earn the trust of the people that we work with, and I think that's the integrity part of our brand.
0: Permitter Phil, any, any any other comments about brand relative to
2: uh, this issue? Well, like Mike, Michael said, that you know, so sometimes this whole brand thing it gets caught up in colors and logos, and you hire a consultant, and first thing they do is they tell you your colors are out of whack, and your logo is is antique or whatever, and they want to come in and change <laughs> change everything. You know, and you're talking to some 25-year-old that just got out of marketing college <laughs> or something. Um, but that's kind of the business side of it. You know, this this whole subject is kind of viewed from the eyes of the beholder when you talk about all the title All Addicts Matter. What, is, what does that really mean? I think everyone in this room would say, sure, given the confines of who I decide that my treatment center can best serve and what that population and it might be niche is best designed for that's what i'm going to program for and i think that's really the expectation i don't think anyone believes that every treatment center can meet all the demographic needs or respective niches you know i'll refer attorneys to you guys all day long Um, where's marvin um, they're not, not, they're, there are tough populations to work with, and I don't know realistically how any organization can develop clinical depth and uh, expertise to really honestly say that we can deal with any niche, any, any multiple uh, challenge or diverse demographic that comes to us. We can do that. But I think understanding what you do best and then applying the resources, as you said, and making sure you have the resources and then communicating it so we do it honestly and try to, the brand promise I think what really the brand is all about is what that is between you and and that family that you're going to serve And do you have the clinical resources and depth to do it? If you don't, you should refer it out to someone else that does.
5: Kermit, if I could just switch gears a little bit in terms of this whole mixed population issue and brand and the like is about those promises about service provision. But one of the benefits of being in a small community and being a 12-step-based program and having a mixed population like this is that Upon admission oftentimes we have people who identify themselves as having special needs and special concerns and and wanting some special attention paid to their confidentiality and the like. But we in Sioux City, Iowa have over a hundred AA meetings a week, and AA is an equalizer to everyone. And if we're good at clinically getting people engaged in the 12-step community as part of their treatment and part of their ongoing support, all of a sudden the whole socioeconomic class and who we are as people and professionals and stuff dissolves. And we now have a group of people suffering from and recovering from a common illness. And they are attached at the heart rather than the pocketbook. Mm. And they care about one another, and all of a sudden, the ongoing clinical needs change, and you have, which is part of our mission statement about creating a recovery-centered, our vision statement about creating a recovery-centered Siouxland, you start a community of recovery in your small town that has impact. It's kind of like I was the home of, of uh, the Maharishi U. In Fairfield, Iowa, the Maharishi's got a a college and, you know, the Maharishi says you get, get, what is it, 10% of the world meditating, you'll have world peace. We believe that if we get 10% of the alcoholics in our community in AA, (laughs) we're going to have a recovery supportive community where people are working to help each other get well rather than than uh, f- focusing on the differences that people have. They're focusing on the commonalities of what people have.
0: Thank you. Um, so, so the last question uh, that I'm going to ask before I turn to, to you uh, uh, for questions or comments uh, is, um, Mike, we'll start with you, but just, just one thing uh, in, from, uh, from this perspective and on this topic, are you really proud of uh, that your organization stands for, your organization does uh, something that you uh, would like to share with uh, our audience that really makes you very, very proud? Sort of the opposite side of what keeps you up at night and what makes you scratch your head.
3: You know,
1: I got to say, the staff and the team, I mean, I will be remiss if I don't mention that we have one of the oldest specific units for problem gambling in the country, Vanguard unit. Maybe you've heard of Vanguard. I don't know. But what I am most proud of is the organizational culture. Uh, And organizational culture to me isn't just part of it. Organizational culture is all of it and having that group of staff that feel engaged and more than that invested from the strategic planning process and we're careful strategic planners i mean i'm i believe if you're not planning and you don't have a plan in front of you you're you're in trouble but when i th- i have folks uh, that work that I have the pleasure to work with that are so much knowledgeable about their areas than I am. And I don't, I'm so proud of that, I don't feel threatened by that anymore. Maybe it's because I'm an old guy, once I needed to know it all. But I think that the goal is to find the people and find their hearts and develop and help and mentor and, and learn from. Um, because I think that's the essence of a recovery center that ultimately attracts people based on word of mouth for us. So that's what I'm I'm most proud of in this this organization. I know that the staff would walk on hot coals to make sure that the patients they'll come in in the middle of the night. I wish they didn't, if they feel like that makes the difference. So. Uh, and, and I guess i it feels good to even say that at this
0: stage so. Mike thank you
3: I think um, definitely the staff and the team um, a task are to be proud of and I think because we don't provide uh, most of our clients don't get our get their treatment services with us they rely on us to solve problems and break down barriers for them Um, And there are all kinds of barriers, right? Whether it's in the court system, whether it's in how am I going to get to my intensive outpatient treatment, whether it's how am I gonna afford my medication, um, or how am I going to build a bridge back to my family? You know, there are all kinds of challenges that people need help with uh, that fall uh, generally outside the scope of treatment, and our staff are really relentless about this. I recently met, um, we have a, support center for people leaving uh, Cook County Jail, one of the biggest jails in the country. That's opening soon. Soon. Very soon. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I um, I recently met two of the lead staff for that. They were actually born after I started at Task, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. It's like intergenerational. Staff and 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 program development, and so the mo- thing I most wanted to communicate with them is never give up on somebody. You know, and and I hear that across this whole panel and in this whole conference that that's a shared value. And the question is, how do we do it given all the challenges that we face?
0: Maureen, thank you.
4: So I have a feeling you're gonna be hearing this all the way down the row, right? If we're not most proud of our organizational culture and we're not most proud of the staff that we have serving the population that we serve, then then that is a challenge we really need to look at. So at Hired Power, we are, you know, as everyone in the trenches, we are out in the community. A lot of our staff are working one-on-one, 24 hours individually with clients, and um, we have the most amazing Staff. And one of the things I heard in one of the sessions yesterday was um, being, a, being a good leader is hiring people who can mentor you in the areas where you are not, you know, we all have our strengths, we all have our weaknesses, and I'm really proud to say that our mentorship is throughout our culture from the top down. And whether it is someone who is driving a client or whether it's someone who's, um, deciding our our vision and our mission the mentorship is throughout and I'm really blessed to have the mentorship and the support of my staff and and I think we have a great team so that's what I'm most proud of
0: thank you Nanette
2: probably to answer your question the culture of recovery um, that has a foundation of structure and accountability um, in in a system now, the challenge there is that when you have multiple cl- locations to try to make sure that that culture gets extended and you hire millennials that want that culture to be all about them, uh, so that you have to be intentional about maintaining, you can't assume, yeah, we have we have good culture and we're focused on recovery. You know it's an effort, and you have to be intentional about it, work towards it all the time and talk about it and examine it and and say, how do you know, uh, show me, how's that played out in the treatment activities, in your outcomes. Uh, when you walk into the facility, can you feel it? Um, when you sit down and overhear clients eating lunch or dinner and they're talking about recovery issues rather than the Cubs, or something like that. Um, uh, Well, well, we're (laughs) so that's my answer. Thank you, Phil.
5: I would agree with my colleagues on everything's been said, and I'm gonna share two things that I'm most proud of that are really selfish. One is that I'm really proud of our integration effort. I have watched our patients learn how to go to a physician or a nurse practitioner and take some responsibility for their health rather than seek drugs. I've seen them get healthier rather than not. I've seen them go and talk about anxiety and come out of the doctor's office without a prescription to benzos. I've seen them go in and talk about sleep and not come out with a prescription for Ambien. I've seen them learn how to live in recovery without having to take a pill that puts them back into relapse. I'm proud of that. I think it's working anecdotally. And the last thing I would say is that parents aren't supposed to have favorite children, but our Women and Children's Treatment Program has probably kept me in this field the last 10 years in that I can go and rock the babies and look in their eyes, and look in moms and babies' eyes that have had the opportunity for their eyes to go from blurry and cloudy, and not even knowing why this, why they had this child, to watching moms fall in love with their children all over again, their children connect with their mothers again, and start feeling that. And I get to be part of that. I get to read books to them. I get to rock them. I get to. I get to be one of the few men that they see in their lives, and it has kept me going when I thought I am done with this field, that I've fought too long, I can't do it anymore. They keep me going. Wow. I'm glad I didn't
0: have to go after that
1: one. I
0: know. <laughs> on, Saturday, on Saturday, Kermit uh, said that you really have to be a warrior in this field. Um, and we certainly have five warriors uh, up on our panel, and uh, it's it's just amazing listening to how you talk about your respective organizations without regard to how we differentiate who gets what service based on ability to pay. Uh, question. The, whatever pink is that pink sweater?
2: It takes an experienced staffer to deal with that. Um, in our settings, it's probably easier done with kids than it is with adults sometimes, particularly when you have a great divide of incomes. Um, as we all know, uh, people can look, particularly early in treatment, for every excuse to get out of treatment, right. and you know, we've uh, perhaps mistakenly put an airline stewardess sharing a a, a bedroom with someone that perhaps has not had legitimate uh, work experience and um, that is all all of a sudden an issue. Well, for a good therapist, that's a a therapeutic opportunity. Um, Because, you know, in reality, that stewardess has probably had some pretty low periods of functioning in, in her or his, I guess they don't call him stewardess anymore, pardon me, flight attendant. Um, um, so yes, it requires uh, good clinical skills to be able to deal with that. But it can be challenging with adult populations, probably a little less so with youth. Uh, they all look, the kids all look bad, you know, in that respect, mm-hmm. they all wear the jeans and whatever. Uh, so they, it, it's not as big. It could be an issue for parents of kids if there are distinct socioeconomic uh, uh, gaps. Particularly, the larger the gap, the the more of the issues is that. Well, maybe maybe Billy doesn't belong here. Maybe I. Well, the problem is Billy needs to belong someplace. But it does require good clinical skill to deal with those challenges. Final question.
5: We have a final question? I just want to tell this woman here that one of the things that I'm embarrassed to say, but it's the only way that we've made it work, is that we do clinical matching, and we don't put them oftentimes together. It happens in other places, but it doesn't happen there.
0: Final question.
1: Boy, that's the $60,000 question, but I can tell you one of the things that we do is we look for outreach kind of capabilities that uh, that aren't really affordable. For example, we host a booth at this Minnesota State Fair which gets millions of people. We, we keep our outreach administration costs in terms of, uh, of that. Uh, you know, we work with other providers. Now, there's one message I have to the high-end providers in this room. It's if you're not sending people that can't afford your program to a lower-cost program, shame on you. And I worked in a higher-end program for a lot of years. But we work with some higher-end providers that are getting the calls, and if they'll take the calls and send us our way. We talk to interventionists, and I say, you know, that's great, interventionists, but you're asking for five, five to six thousand dollars, and then you're talking about them coming up more. Surely you got people that you can package in terms of. We don't have any deals. We don't have anybody that asks about can we be your interventionist. We give them three names, all of our patients. But you're absolutely right. And I, if I, if I was up here telling you that I had the absolute, you know, and sometimes. Some people can't. They're, with our with our population of public, there's some folks that don't fit, and I'll send them to a higher end provider because I know in that work in that group they're gonna look around a little bit and you know, so that that matching is. But you know, uh, I'm still learning on that, and boy, I'd be happy for anybody else. I think it's it's an art. It's a it's a process. It's uh, it's being cheap. <laughs>
0: Final comment on that from anybody else on the panel before we uh, close.
2: Well, I think you just hit on probably one of the biggest challenges of trying to have a blended funding stream. Um, how do you staff and program and have meet the expectations of those that have choices to go someplace else and yet still serve someone that their reimbursement rate may be sixty percent, seventy percent of your cost? Um, someone might scratch your head and say well then why do you do that if it's 60% of your costs well then you go back to your mission Mm -hmm. and you go back to the charge and your business model and what you can afford to do um, and manage it accordingly
5: My my final comment on that is is that I think we all have um, I'm old and I've been in this business a long time and I used to we used to cost shift we used to, our, our commercial insurance contracts paid for those who didn't have the ability to pay and had whatever, uh, that day is gone in Iowa in that our commercial contract pays about the same as Medicaid now. And I'm sure that is going to spread spread across the country that Medicaid, Medicare payment uh, is gonna be what commercial, are, Looking at pain in the future, so it's something I think we all have to worry about. And the answer to to that that was the way we deal with it. It's it's uh, um, payer mix. You got to manage payer mix.
1: I would add to that that that's exactly what happened in Minnesota for those folks. Is that uh, the 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 insurance rates, the prepaid medical assistant uh, state insurance plans dropped to the lowest public funding and shortly after all the commercial rates dropped to that fund. So uh, for those folks that aren't in the public world better pay attention to it because that's the train that's running right now a little bit.
0: Panel, thank you. Thank you for staying. When Marv came up he asked that we hustle out to get our to get to the shuttle or we're walking over to the governor's ballroom for lunch. So again, thank you for being here.
2: How far is that?